Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We've made our way as far as verse 18. That's where we'll be picking it up as we continue our look at the book of Luke together. In a message I've entitled, When in Doubt. Let's begin in verse 18 of chapter 7. Let's read it together. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits on many who were blind, uh, and he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are kings in courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Well, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those who are born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what, what are they like? Well, they are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sing a deary, and yet you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said that he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, he, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In verse 17, as Jesus continued his public ministry, as he was heading into the city of Capernaum, there was a funeral procession heading out of the city of Capernaum, which he began to uh, interrupt. And he interrupted the procession by raising the one who is dead back to life, to allow him to take care of his mother who was alone and would have been widowed without him. But as a result, Luke tells us in verse 17, in this report, that is the raising of this young man, 
about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countries. When this took place, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist was arrested, taken into prison, and kept in the dungeon of Herod Antipas. And while there, he began to apparently doubt and to wonder if Jesus was truly the Messiah that he thought he was, meaning the Messiah John thought that he was. And his doubt and confusion led him to send some of his followers to Jesus to inquire and to ask, are you the one or is there another yet to come that we should follow? This moment of doubt in John's life was a moment that we see that individuals, even like John the Baptist, can be placed in areas of vulnerability, and as a result, they can uh, doubt the circumstances that they uh, face, and, re- and then also doubt the God in whom they follow due to the circumstances that they are experiencing. When we think about doubt, many struggle with doubt. In fact, I will be presumptuous to say that everyone at one time or another struggles with doubt concerning God and their Christian faith. Often after doubting or during that period of doubt, there will be a great deal of self-condemnation that will come upon the heart of that individual, thinking that they have let God down due to the fact that they have doubted Him in some way. But I greatly believe, after looking at the New Testament, that doubt and unbelief are two separate things. And the reason I have come to that conclusion is by the manner in which Jesus responds to doubt and the manner that Jesus responded to unbelief. I would say that doubt is a matter of the mind. When our circumstances challenge us and we become vulnerable, to begin to try to ascertain and and discern what God is doing and why He is doing it. At that moment in time, our circumstances can lead us to the point in saying, well, God, I don't understand now what's going on. I don't understand what is happening. I don't understand why you have allowed this to happen. And as a a result, doubt creeps in. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of perception. And it is truly due to our insufficient perspective on our problem or on our circumstances. In fact, if you do a search through the Old Testament, you'll discover that men like Moses had periods of doubt to the point where they just wanted to cash it all in. Now, this is Moses, the champion of the Jewish people, the the prophet of God uh, that led them out of Egypt by the hand of the Lord. He himself doubted to the point that he just wanted to cash it in. If you read in Numbers chapter 11, (laughs) the people had started complaining so greatly that Moses was simply just fed up. God was angry with them. And Moses was like, God, they're your people. They're not mine. You know, I didn't conceive them. You did. You brought them out of Egypt. Maybe we should have just left them there. You know, And as a result, they were done. And then Moses waits on the Lord. The Lord was 
willing to capitulate, and then Moses interceded on behalf of the people. The great prophet Elijah had come to that place where he just wanted to cash it all in. The people are tearing down your temple, they're building altars, they're resurrecting statues of other gods. What's the point of it anymore, Lord? Let's just cash it in, let's forget it. I don't know what you're doing, I don't know why this is happening. Lord, I'm done. And then God spoke to him, showed him what he was doing in 1 Kings 19. Gave him an insight that he didn't have previously. And Elijah was steadled, uh, steadied by that. I think my favorite is Jeremiah, though. Jeremiah was commissioned by God to take the message of Jehovah to the Israelite people. And just as about Jeremiah is about to walk away from God's commission, God says, oh, by, by the way, Jeremiah... Uh, Don't be surprised if no one responds to what you're saying. Uh, In fact, no one is going to. In fact, they're going to hate you for it. But hey, good luck to you. Jeremiah's like, okay. But as time went on, as you get to Jeremiah 20, it's now wearing on him. It's like, Lord, I've done everything I can. I don't know what you're doing, and I don't know why you're doing it. I don't get it. These are your people, I know, but they're not responding. Everything is going sideways on me. I'm not fully understanding. I, I just don't know, Lord. But even Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 fell into a despair concerning his limited understanding of what God was doing and therefore the arising of doubt within their minds and their hearts. Lord, I don't know what is going on, I don't know what you are doing, and I don't know why you are doing it. See, doubt is a matter of the mind, it is a matter of perspective, it is a matter of understanding. And I believe that God is much more understanding when it comes to doubt than we are. See, God understands our limitations and our frailties even better than we do. God understands that we have a very limited microcosm of a perspective on all the things that are happening around us. And often we are asked by faith to trust in the promises of God when yet our circumstances are telling us just the opposite. Our feelings are indicating to us just the opposite. And God's saying, now trust me. And yet we begin to waver, we begin to doubt, and then we begin to believe that we've let God down in some way or fashion. And then the condemnation rolls in. But when it comes to unbelief, it is not a matter of, God, I don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing. It's, I won't believe you and what you are doing, and therefore I won't be obedient to what you have asked of me. It's a resistance, it's a rebellion, it is a, it is a, a line drawn in the sand saying, God, I will go no farther than this. Doubt is pliable, doubt is, uh, has the ability to be overcome, but yet when unbelief reigns in the heart of an individual, it is that unbelief that keeps them from entering into all that God has for them. It is a position of rebellion. It is a position of saying, God, I will not go any farther with you. Oswald Chambers once said, Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. 
it may be a sign that he is simply thinking. I don't know about you, but after 30-some years of walking with the Lord, I have often been in circumstances and in situations where I didn't understand what God was doing and why He was doing it. And at times, it had caused me to doubt the character of God, the nature of God, who God is, and even to the point of God's existence. Because again, we as individuals are limited to our finite existence, our finite mind, our finite perspective, and yet we're asked to embrace an infinite God. And I believe that as you grow as a Christian, one of the realities that you will find yourself embracing is this. God, I don't know what you are doing and I don't know why you are doing it, but I trust you. I trust you. Because I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you're compassionate. I know that you have my best in mind for me even though I don't know what that best is for me. I know, Lord, that you are going to do something in and through me that I probably can't even comprehend at this point. And I know that you're working in me to conform me into the image of Jesus Christ and every circumstance that I find myself in is contributing to that goal. Lord, I trust you. I don't get it, but I trust you. John the Baptist finds himself in prison. It is just moments before he will be executed. And as a result, he is now beginning to question, and undoubtedly his circumstances have brought him to this position, this place. Sitting in prison was probably one of the most torturous experiences for John the Baptist since he was occupying the wilderness and he lived in the manner in which he did on locusts and honey and so forth and now he finds himself confined to this limited area and he is now questioning if the jesus is truly the one why would he question this why would he even consider that there may be still yet another coming It is apparent to me that when the writers and the prophets spoke and wrote in the Bible, they often had a limited understanding of what they were writing. Meaning there are prophecies in the Old Testament that when Isaiah wrote them, I don't think he fully understood on how they were going to be fulfilled, but yet knew they were going to be fulfilled by the Lord. I believe that John the Baptist knew that, of course, Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, but I'm not convinced that John knew specifically how that was going to be done. The reason I say that is because obviously John understood that he was the fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1 through 3, the one who precedes the uh, coming of the Messiah. Listen to these words as I read them to you. This is out of Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send a messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But, notice this, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner's fire and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
This was the expectation that John had in his mind. And one of the most difficult concepts that the religious leaders had to contend with concerning the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah was the fact that the prophecy seemed to speak of two different messiahs. One that was going to come and suffer and and be in humility, and the other one that was going to come victoriously and reigning. And what they did to overcome this dilemma that they had created, that apparently rose out of the interpretations in which they assigned to these texts, is that they said, well, either there's going to be two messiahs, one who's going to come and suffer and be humiliated and die, and the other one who is going to come in victory and so forth. That was one of their options. The second option was that all of the texts that had to do with the suffering of the Messiah and so forth and the humility in which he would experience, they said, okay, now this must be speaking not of Messiah, but of the nation of Israel itself. So they took all of those prophecies and they assigned them to the nation of Israel. And then, of course, they created a profile of the coming Messiah based on the text that simply spoke of his victory. They did not realize that Jesus was coming twice. In his first coming, he would be the suffering servant, dying in humility upon the cross. In his second coming, he was going to be the conquering hero, the victorious one. And this misunderstanding plays out throughout the entire Gospels, and we can make a strong argument for that. And John the Baptist is now confronted with the same reality. The Messiah has come, he has preceded the Messiah, but the Messiah doesn't seem to be doing what the Messiah ought to be doing. Instead, he's healing people, and he's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, and he hasn't let the captives free. Why? Because I'm still in jail, he's saying. And so, do we need to wait for another? Or are you the one that we have anticipated? So not only our circumstances can lead us into moments of doubt, but our misunderstanding of the Word of God can also, can't it? It can cause us to question. It can cause us uh, challenging our mind and our hearts concerning God. This is why teaching is so important. This is why false teaching is so dangerous. Because false teaching leads to false conclusions that always lead to false expectations in the life of the believer. And this is what Paul warned about throughout the New Testament. Peter, John, James, all the same. But from John's limited perspective, he was now questioning, is it possible that there's still yet another one coming because Jesus doesn't appear to be doing what the Messiah was assigned to do. As one wrote, he he said this, For John was asking the question, Why is Jesus not fulfilling the messianic tasks of overthrowing the Roman oppression and establishing God's kingdom? So John sends his disciples to ask Jesus whether if he indeed is the one to come, or yet is there still yet another? From John's perspective, there must have been within him an issue of disappointment. John, because of his expectations and his conclusions concerning the coming of the Messiah, not fully understanding everything that Jesus was going to do, he knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God. 
But how was Jesus going to pay for the sins of the world and become that victorious uh, individual and so forth? It seems that John didn't have all the blanks filled in. Oh, don't you wish that as Christians we would have God fill in all the blanks for us in life? Wouldn't that be nice? You know, every morning you wake up and there's a text or an email on your phone saying, Good morning, it's God. Here's what you can expect today. He starts out with the weather forecast. Now, all the weathermen say this, but I say that, you know, it's not going to happen. Yes, it's June, but we're going to have it snow in Chicago. We'd all believe that, right? And nobody else would. We Just Chicago. Uh, Here's what's going to happen. You're going to get up. You're going to stub your toe. And you're going to curse me, but I forgive you, (laughs) you know. It would be nice. However, though, then faith wouldn't be required would it? We wouldn't have to trust him to fill in the blanks as we go. And that's not the relationship God wants with us. He wants a relationship that is developed over time, that looks at him as our Abba Father, saying, Lord, I don't know why I'm going through this, but I trust you in this moment. That's what he's looking to produce in your life. Disappointment is one of those things that God often uses, even though we create the circumstances that lead to the disappointment, God often uses disappointments to call us to go deeper with Him. Why? It is because we become less focused upon ourselves and a greater focus and dependency is directed towards God in the wake of disappointment. So John asks the question, and we see here in verses 18 through 21, as John asks the question, and the disciples of John reported all these things to him, everything that Jesus had done up until that point, and John calling two of them to his disciples sent him and said to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And then this is how Jesus responds, verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. On many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Now go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news, preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus answers the question by displaying who he is. It, was, it would be one thing if he just came out and said it, but it's another thing to demonstrate it through all that he is capable of doing. Now, as a result, Jesus did not just whimsically put these together in hopes that they would convince John of his true identity. All of these are fulfillments of biblical prophecy that are given to us in the book of Isaiah. And basically, he was going back to the book of Isaiah and showing John that everything that the Messiah is supposed to do, I truly am doing. 
And it's not a rebuke. It's not a, you know, a harsh correction, a reproof. It's simply showing and demonstrating to John who he is. Jesus' entire ministry began with the reading of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. May I read them for you? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. In Isaiah 29, 18 and 19, if I may read for you again. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness their eyes of blind shall see. And the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, again speaking of the coming of Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf uh, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For water breaks forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And lastly, in Isaiah 42, 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So he simply demonstrates to the messengers of John who he is and return, have him to return to John and say, this is what he is doing. Again, fully displaying that he is the coming one, the Messiah himself. Reassuring John that uh, though he may not fully understand the way that God's plan is playing out, John, I am the one that you have been waiting and anticipating. Now it's interesting, the story continues. And from this point we find that Luke records this for us. In verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. It appears that the crowds heard the question of the disciples of John, and that could have brought uh, an insecurity to their hearts concerning John's ministry and who John was. Oh, wait a minute. John doesn't recognize you to be the one? Was John right? Was John wrong? Who was John now? And notice how Jesus approaches this. He asked the crowd three times this question. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? There in the Jordan Valley, if you go to the you know, Jordan River in the wilderness, the lines of the Jordan River are just, just, they're like a fence. These reeds are like a fence on either side of them that you have to get through to get to the water. And they moved in a very, very... A beautiful manner as the wind would move through the Jordan Valley along the Jordan River, and they would move and sway, and it was very calming, you know, to watch. It was one of those things. This is before they had the, the sound machines you put next to your bed, you know, uh, of the, uh, you know, of the, you know, the ocean, or some of you might like, you know, a thunderstorm, or the gentle rain. You know, somebody gave me one of those one time. They said, you know, this will help, really help you sleep. I guess they thought I was cranky and I needed to get better sleep. 
And so I put it next to my bed, and I'm like, okay, I'm going through the different sounds, and you know, and I'm like, oh, here's one of nice, steady rain, and I'm like, oh, how peaceful it is, you know, just hearing the raindrops on this, what sounded like a metal roof, and I'm like, oh, wow, this is so great. You know, I didn't sleep at all that night. I had to go up and get to the bathroom five times. I regifted that thing. This was also then, you know, people went out to see the wreaths blowing. It was something they did, and it was something they enjoyed doing. But it also became an idiom for those who would uh, vacillate with whatever way the conversation was trending or whatever uh, was popular at the moment. An individual would vacillate, like these reeds being blown by the wind in whatever direction the wind went, those reeds would go in that way. Did you really go to see one simply vacillating? A reed shaken and by the wind? Well, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury and are king's courts and are in king's courts. John's in prison. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Well, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus uses this scenario as a teaching opportunity. He validates who John is and does not criticize him for his concern or his doubt. I think that's very important to notice that Jesus does not criticize him for his moment of doubt. When Jesus dealt with Thomas, we all know him as Doubting Thomas. And of course, Thomas makes that declaration, well, if I could only put my fingers in his, the holes of the nails in his hand and, 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 and the hole in his side where the spear entered, then I, you know, would believe. Did Jesus rebuke him? When Jesus showed himself to Thomas, he said, Thomas, Put your finger in my nail hole. Put your hand in my side. Now, Thomas, believe. Don't doubt. What does Thomas do? Immediately. Gentleness. Compassion. See, God knew Thomas better than Thomas knew himself. It would have been easy for all of us to jump on Thomas and to criticize Thomas. Oh, come on, Thomas. After everything you've seen, you still need more, you know? Well, after he was crucified, you guys all went back fishing. Yeah, well, you know. But you, you know. How could you ever doubt him that greatly? You know, sometimes when we deal with someone who is doubting, Maybe we need to be a little bit more compassionate. Maybe they find themselves in circumstances where they're simply thinking it through and asking the question, I don't know what God is doing and why He is doing it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been there at one time or another. 
And he doesn't criticize John. He doesn't say openly to everybody who is around, Oh, John, you know, he's just having a, a mental you know, issue right now. And uh, just pray for him and hopefully he'll come around soon. He reaffirms who John is in the sight of the people. And then he brings it into a teaching moment, a teaching opportunity. And begins, I believe, to address the difference between doubt and unbelief. Wait a minute, now John is just simply in a moment of doubt. He'll get past that. Now what about you? Talking to the crowd that has surrounded him. What about you? Is it simply doubt that is keeping you from believing? Or is it this stubborn unwillingness to believe? That you've drawn the line in the sand and say, I will go no further. That you refuse to believe who I am. Notice what he says here. Calling John the greatest of the prophets was an extraordinary thing to say to Jewish people. If you were to ask them which of the prophets was greatest, I would venture to say that the majority of them would say Moses. Oh, but Moses had his time too, didn't he? Well, maybe Elijah. Well, Elijah had his moment too, didn't he? Maybe, okay, maybe, oh, Jeremiah. Oh, yeah. Well, Jeremiah had his moment too. The reason Jesus calls him the greatest is because he had the privilege of announcing the arrival of the Messiah, which all the prophets previously um, were looking in great anticipation for. They prophesied of the Messiah continuously throughout their writings, and yet John is the one who had the opportunity to usher in God's only begotten Son. And yet, the least in the kingdom of God is in a superior position than that of John. Oh, wait a minute now. What do you mean by that? For John, being a prophet of God was uniquely appointed for that position. He was anointed for that position. But anyone who is found in Jesus Christ, anyone who believes in Christ as their, as their Savior and Lord has the privilege of being adopted into the family of God and calling the Father Abba. Do you know one of the most scandalous things that Jesus ever said is found in the prayer that he gave to the people to pray. It's the very first line of that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. To the Jewish people, this was absolutely prohibited and unacceptable. No one could address God that loosely in their mind, but also that intimately. No one could be that presumptuous to say that God is my Father, and Jesus is saying, God is your Father. Paul went on to reiterate this, saying that not only can you call him Father, but Abba Father, Daddy. You can have that intimate and personal of a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the least is greater than John. And when the people heard this, verse 29, notice with me, and the tax collectors too, They declared God is just, and they demonstrated that declaration by being baptized with the baptism of John. 
The crowd and the, those in it, the common people, the sinners, the tax collectors who responded to John's declaration demonstrated that by being baptized into repentance, the baptism of John, they displayed that they were preparing their hearts for the coming Messiah. For Jesus was referring to this. He was, he was insinuating this, that if you rejected John, then you're going to reject me. If you didn't understand who John was, then you're not going to understand who I am. But then he turns his attention to the religious leaders. But the Pharisees and the lawyers uh, or scribes rejected the purposes of God for themselves, having been baptized, not being baptized by him. So now he begins to disseminate between those who doubt and those who are rigid in their unbelief before God. Calling out the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and so forth. These people, they responded to the baptism of John, and therefore they are going to respond possibly to who I am. But you, since you've resisted John from the very beginning, are not going to know who I am and understand who I am. And so what shall I say then to compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Well, they're like children. Sitting around in the marketplace and calling to one another, we play the flute for you and you did not dance, and we sang a dingery and you did not weep. This is a cultural saying, and I'll help you try to understand what Jesus is implying here. But Jesus is stating that as the religious leaders spoke and taught, the people wouldn't subject themselves to their authority any longer because of the corruption and the self-opposing agenda that the religious leaders placed in mind. And so as the religious leaders came to the people, they found themselves further and further rejected by the people. And one of the real reasons the people began to really reject the religious leaders even before the coming of Jesus Christ was due to the fact that the religious leaders vacillated so greatly on the manner in which Rome should be acknowledged by the Jewish people. Another long story for another day. But the people of that time were very uh, confused. Should we be rebelling against the Roman people, should, the Romans' uh, oppression, or should we be subjecting ourselves to the Roman uh, oppression, etc.? And the religious leaders now are finding that they are losing their authority amongst the people. Notice what Tom Constable says in his notes, one of my favorite uh, scholars. They were behaving no better than fickle children who became upset when their peers refused to cooperate with them. Jesus pictured the religious leaders as children sitting down and calling out to others, March to our tune! However, their peers would not cooperate, so the religious leaders began to criticize them. And as a result, in verse 33, For John the Baptist has come, eating bread and drinking, uh, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you said, well, he has a demon. That was the religious leader's conclusion. Now concerning the Son of Man, notice you haven't recognized me either. He uses this term of himself to disclaim his deity. For the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of the tax collectors and sinners. 
Why does Jesus say this? I'll put forth this for you. He knew that the moment of doubt that John was experiencing was a temporal moment in John's life. John could get past it. One way or another. Either he would have further insight and understanding of his circumstances and so forth, and therefore allowing him to pass from doubt into uh, security and, and belief. Or it was simply the fact that uh, as John uh, re- relinquished his own understanding, you know, and trusted the Lord by faith, that he could move from doubt to a secure position of believing. Either way, Jesus knew that this was temporal. But now Jesus is painting the picture of the religious leaders. Listen, the people don't recognize your authority anymore and they're not marching to your tune any longer. Why? Because you didn't know who John was. You said he had a demon. You don't know who I am. You say I'm a glutton and a sinner. So why should the people look to you any longer? Your unbelief has kept you from moving any farther in understanding of what God is doing around you and in your time. That's what he is saying here. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But I say to you this morning, when it comes to doubt... Let us not be quick to immediately move to a position where we self-condemn ourselves for that doubt. Or that we believe that that doubt in some way is going to negate God's faithfulness to His promises towards us. Or that our personal, answered, our personal prayers aren't, be, aren't answering because we doubt. Now James talks about doubting in our time of prayer. But he says the consequence of that doubting is that we're going to be moved to and fro by everything that comes across our path. He doesn't say anything concerning the faithfulness of God towards us. So often, we put this responsibility on our shoulders that God hasn't placed there. Now, I'm going to tell you something that may discourage you from ever coming back to our church again. After 30 years of studying the Word of God, I am now thoroughly convinced that I know less now than I did when I started pastoring. Because of the depth of God, the breadth of God, the infinite manner in who God is. When I started out ministering, I started, I know it all, you know. Just ask me. I got it. And then God showed me, oh, you don't got anything yet. And then I began to grow. Because I believe that one of the most dangerous places a a person can ever arrive is where they're no longer teachable by God. I'm learning new things about God every single day. And none of us are ever going to come to a place where we arrive and we know it all perfectly, not only who He is, but what everything that He is doing in our lives A greater need for faith is often required as we grow with the Lord. But I will say this, though I made that statement, I will say this to you, that after 30 years of studying God's Word, I know God better today than I ever knew Him before. And that's all that really matters. 
And as a result, I encourage you this morning that when we go through doubt, let us understand that this is a moment in time. And we can say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. But my circumstances are overwhelming me right now. And they are leading me to draw conclusions about you and and what you are doing and why you are doing it, Lord. They're challenging me to question the goodness of God, even though it is stated so clearly in God's word. And notice how God then responds to you. He'll lead you to a psalm that'll encourage you. He'll lead you to a passage of scripture where all of a sudden you realize, wow, some of the great champions of the faith, they struggled with doubt at one time or another. It's not the same as unbelief saying, God, I'm just not going to believe in you and I'm just not going any further with you. It's just saying, you know, I'm having trouble getting over this speed bump. I'm having a difficulty. You know, I think all of us have driven long enough to know that, you know, you, 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 you slow down when you come to speed bumps now, right? When I was a teenager, I took them full blast. It was because I was driving my dad's car, not mine, you know. But now as I'm grown and it's my responsibility to maintain my vehicle, when I come to a speed bump, you know, slow down to five miles an hour and having the teenagers behind me yell at me, move over, grandpa, let's go, you know. But why? It's because I know that that speed bump can cause damage to my car. That it's going to be a bigger headache if I go over it quickly rather than stopping before it. But see, a speed bump is one of those things. I don't stop at the speed bump, get out of my car, and walk from that point forward. I just drive over it slowly. So when you drive over a speed bump or you walk over a speed bump in your Christian life, understand that you're still moving. You just may have slowed down a little bit. The reason I slow down is because I just never know how high that speed bump is and then my car going to bottom out after all, you know. So you want to go real slow up and over it. That's what I see doubting as. Just a moment where we just go a little bit slower. And just saying, Lord, I need you to give me greater insight. And often I find that he brings us to those positions for our personal growth, where we admit, I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. And it often is an invitation for us to grow deeper and more intimate with the Lord. It's a time where we can become more dependent on Him. It's a time where we can say by faith, Lord, I'm going to trust you even greater in my walk with you going forward. But in each and every case, let us understand that doubt and unbelief, I believe, are two separate things. And that one is meant to be overcome and the other one is meant to be overcome once and for all. When in doubt, take a moment to get alone with the Lord and seek His wisdom. Verse 38. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Those who know what is right to do and does it. Those who understand and respond accordingly. That is how Wisdom is justified before us. And that's the wisdom that God wants you to have this morning. In your moments of doubt, turn to Him and He'll see you through.